Welcome back to series two of Mud Between Your Toes. In this series, I'm going to let my guests do all the talking. People with a great and often inspirational story to tell, or maybe just something funny. So sit back and enjoy Conversations with Pete Wood. Hello. Keith Richberg is an American journalist who spent more than 30 years working for the Washington Post, reporting from Southeast Asia, Middle East, China, Hong Kong, Europe, and of course, Africa. He also covered the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, even riding a horse partway across the Hindu Kush. He's currently director of the Journalism and Media Studies Center of the University of Hong Kong. There's a lot under his belt. So Keith is here today to talk to me largely about his time spent in Africa between 1991 and 1994, from which he wrote a best-selling book, Out of America, A Black Man Confronts Africa. The book provoked controversy in the African-American community due to its perceived criticism of Africans. So without much ado, Keith Richburg, it's a pleasure to have you on Conversations with Pete Wood. Thank you, Pete. It's good to be here. As I've already said, you have a lot under your belt. So perhaps in the time given, we should concentrate on Africa. As the Washington Post correspondent for Africa, you witnessed the Rwandan genocide, civil war in Somalia, cholera in Zaire, but it was your book, Out of America, that caused just a few tongues to wag around the world. You are African-American, and I'm going to quote you from your book. Thank God my nameless ancestor, brought across the ocean in chains and leg irons, made it out alive. Thank God I am an American. Do you still stand by that comment, given the state of America today? Well, you know, at the time we're recording this, we were just about to ready to go into an election, <laughs> which will, uh, I might, I might be do a cop out and say, ask me after the election, whether I still feel that way. No, but absolutely. Absolutely. I feel that way. Because when I look at uh, what's happening now and what's happening in America now with this reckoning of, of, of racial inequality and, uh, and coming to terms with these, uh, you know, decades or really centuries of racial injustice in America, I think that only goes to really prove you know, one of the main points I was trying to make in the book, which is America, for all of its flaws, has this way of eventually getting things right and eventually redeeming itself. And I'm starting to see that now. Um, perhaps we had to go through the kind of the, the nightmare of the last four years of President Trump's administration to kind of come to that point. Um, unfortunately, it had to uh, you know, be the death of George Floyd under a policeman's knee, but we're finally coming to terms with that kind of injustice that we uh, had to see in, in the United States in terms of race relations. And I guess one of the main points of the book that I tried to make at the time was that uh, Black Americans have this chance to kind of always uh, try to make America a better place and try to make America live up to what its ideals were. And that, that was the point I was trying to make in, in the book, which is despite all of its flaws, uh, despite all of the problems that we know about, you know, in terms of discrimination against blacks and the uh, uh, more blacks below the poverty line than than uh, the, you know than any other minority or ethnic group in in the United States, 
it is still the land where we can make things right, where we can reinvent ourselves, where eventually, you know, we try to tackle these issues and eventually we sometimes get it right. Absolutely. And in fact, I'll get back to that in a minute. But uh, The Economist recently stated, I think just last week, Americans struggle to recognize the place they admire. Um, but in fact, you witnessed upheaval at an early age. In July 1967, age nine, you had a ringside view of the inner city riots in Detroit, one of the deadliest and most destructive riots in American history. Um, how did that impact you later in life? Well, I, you know, I think it probably was at one of those defining moments of childhood, you know, watching kind of the, uh, the, the city of Detroit where I grew up, watching it kind of being set on fire at the time, the worst urban riot in American history. You know, I think of over 40 people, 42 people or something like that were, were killed. Uh, many of them very innocent people, many of them caught in the crossfire between uh, National Guard troops and snipers. And I saw from the 1967 riot in Detroit and onwards how urban unrest, uh, which became a buzzword or a, uh, a euphemism for black unrest in the ghettos, how that kind of shaped our politics. And it gave us Richard Nixon's law and order presidency and the Southern strategy and, and pretty much everything else. So race has always, from my perspective, been a polarizing issue in the United States. You know, but, you know, again, you know, the, America has this tendency to kind of, you know, tackle things and set up commissions and try to investigate what went wrong and try to correct things, et cetera. So we did have, out of the 67 Detroit riots, the Kerner Commission report, uh, which, uh, which basically led to the conclusion that America was two separate places, separate but not equal. And uh, it looked at kind of bias in police department, you know, the systematic racism, systemic racism that existed in government uh, where you know uh, blacks were underrepresented in uh, in corporate america in business it looked at housing and housing discrimination patterns and among other things it looked at media and journalism and how newsrooms uh, were basically uh, segregated where the 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 viewpoint and perspectives of african americans were missing from mainstream media coverage so that's something that again the united states spent the 1970s and, and or, you know, 80s trying to correct, you know, by trying to, again, you know, by trying to hire people through various affirmative action programs, through universities, trying to recruit more African-Americans. I was in many ways a product of that kind of, uh, that kind of rethinking. So I would, so when I see what's happening now with the, uh, the, the, uh, the protests, largely peaceful, but some which descended into looting and violence. When I see what's going on now, it seems to me like the unfinished business from the, Kerner report from the 1967 riots is, is, you know, is, is now finally being, you know, being brought to, brought to terms there. People are starting to say, look, we still are two separate societies, separate but unequal. We're still, we still have a society where uh, young black men feel that the police are an occupation force. I mean, you could have said some of these same things they're saying now, you could have said back in 1967. So, you know, for me, I'm having this kind of sense of deja vu, but I mean, it seems like every 30 or 40 years, we have to have maybe a you know, kind of a conflagration before we can come to terms with what's going on. So, you know, that's, that's, that has always kind of shaped my viewpoint that, you know, we, we do, America is a flawed place in many ways, but as, uh, you know, Barack Obama and many others have said, we're always trying to perfect that union. And I think that's where people, particularly overseas, get it wrong. They think America goes around the world trying to say, we're a perfect country and you can be like us and you should emulate us. Instead, we are still trying to perfect that union where 
everyone is created equal, et cetera, et cetera. So that, you know, and again, I mean, we, 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 despite all the flaws, I think one of the things America is good is at reinvention, reinventing, reinventing itself and uh, trying to make itself a better place. We don't always get it right. But again, I mean, I don't know when this will, if this will be airing after the U.S. election going on, but I'll bet you we have a course correction uh, in the offing. I mean, it's interesting what you've just said. You were quite critical about the U.S. government involvement or lack thereof in Africa. In fact, you strongly believe that the role of a journalist isn't only to inform, but also to galvanize governments and NGOs into action. In fact, that action or intervention turned into a dangerous cock-up in Somalia. But once again, let me read uh, from The Economist. Americans are liable both to over and to underestimate the influence they have in the world. American military power alone cannot transform foreign countries as the long wars in Afghanistan and Iraq proved, yet American ideals rarely do serve as an example to other democracies and to people who live in states that persecute their citizens. I mean, I think that's what you've just said, actually. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of funny, but, you know, it's, it's, and it, it's become a bit of a cliche in American politics to say that, you know, we're, we, America does better not by not when it's showing off its military power, but when it's showing off its ideals, you know, or in other words, you know, it's it's the example of our it's it's the power of our example, not the example of our power, you know, that moves people, you know, because I'm, you know, from where I'm living now in Hong Kong, you know, I, you know, I, I noticed that when these young protesters in 2019 were marching through the streets, so many of them were waving American flags and calling on the United States to step in and help. You know, they weren't calling on, you know, other countries. You know, they were they see the United States as this one that was going to uphold these values of human rights. Now, I think that was partly misplaced because the president who was in power at the time, President Trump, had no interest in getting involved in what was happening in Hong Kong because he was a much more transactional president. But when you look around the world, when people are, you know, struggling for their own democracy or struggling for human rights, it's America, they look up to America as the ideal. And it's not to say, again, that America is the perfect place, but at least the ideal of America is the thing that people are aspiring to. And that's, that's, that's one of the most powerful things, I think, about the United States, which is people do believe that, you know, those words, you know, you know that all men are created equal and, uh, you know, endowed with certain inalienable rights, including life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those words have inspired people, I think, all over the globe, including uh, people in Africa. And that's kind of was one of the points of my book, which is that, Af you know, black Americans, who, the descendants of those slaves taken to Africa, uh, instead of trying to go back to a mythic Africa that they think was you know, a better place before slavery, should be uh, helping in that fight, in that struggle to transform America into that more perfect union that it could be. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you do need to read the book in order to make sense of your statement, given Africa's history of killings and repression and false promise and general horror. Um, so, of course, this led you to the thorny question, if this is Africa, what does it mean for me to be an African-American? Well, well, that's right. And it was a, as I say in the book, it was a term that I was never terribly comfortable with. Because African-American, uh, first of all, implies that I've got some uh, uh, lineage that I can trace back to Africa, and I assume by my skin color that I can. But I mean, unlike a, 
unlike an Irish American who can usually tell you in which county from Ireland their ancestors emigrated or a German American who might know the exact town in Germany that their great great grandfather came from you know or or a, you know any any other hyphenated American a Chinese American can probably tell you the ancestral village in China you know where their ancestors emigrated from possibly passing through Taiwan or Hong Kong on the way Africa is a big place and you know you know and and you know despite the fact that there's some you know DNA testing now that can kind of come close I mean most Africans don't know what village it was or what uh, what area it was or what region it was they were their ancestors were originally taken from uh, most African Americans or most Black Americans actually have now a mixture of European blood in them as well. And so there's one thing about not actually knowing or being connected to any specific ancestral home or village that made me always kind of think that the term African American was kind of a, a misnomer for us. But more importantly than that, as I say in the book, uh, uh, Black people, uh, first enslaved, and uh, uh, have been a part of the American story going back for more than 400 years. I mean, so, so when the first slaves arrived uh, in, in the United States at Jamestown in Virginia, that was before they were even, they were, they were even like the, the 13 original colonies. And so to call us hyphenated Americans, we're African Americans the same way you have, you know, Chinese Americans or Arab Americans or others. To me, that kind of has always been a way of kind of denying our Americanness, that we were there at the founding, that we were there from the very beginnings of America. And if you look at some of the uh, the most indigenous things in America that you can think of, I mean, what would you think of? What's really so indigenous American that's gone around the world? I mean, jazz music, uh, basketball, uh, food, cooking. Uh, you know, it's it's all it's all known for its its black influence. That black influence has been the influence of America, and you can see it kind of everywhere. And so, you know, in, I think we are among the most indigenous Americans other than the Native Americans and the original European settlers. So, again, I, you know, my, my thinking was that it, it devalued us as Americans who had a rightful place to be and a rightful um, uh, role in helping shape America to call us kind of African-Americans. Because, you know, you know, it's interesting to note after the Civil War, there was a, a movement among some of the uh, former slave-holding states of the old Confederacy defeated by the North to try to deny the Africans, the freed African slaves, their Americanness. And that was the reason that they put in the amendment saying anyone born in America on American soil is an American citizen. Nobody quite understands the reason for that. The reason for it was because there was this movement among the racist white Confederate states after the Civil War to try to say that, well, the blacks can't vote because they're actually not Americans, they're really Africans. And so, you know, the idea that, that calling us African Americans now seems to be mm. denying us our Americanness. Yeah, yeah. I mean, go, going back to your time in Africa, Keith, uh, you covered enough African conflict to fill several volumes. In fact, you said that you had given up counting the number of African countries you had visited, but it was Somalia that seemed to break your spirit and you became disillusioned with the continent. Yeah, you know, Somalia, and I guess compounded later on by Rwanda, but Somalia really was kind of the breaking point. And, you know, it was a uh, it was so ironic because, I mean, it went in, you know, it, we went into Somalia, myself and the other journalists went in initially seeing what was a famine, a famine that was man-made, not natural causes. And, and, by, and by thinking that our work as journalists exposing this story, putting it on the front page, shoving it on the front page of the Washington Post where policymakers could see it, might lead to some resolution, might lead to a good outcome here. And it did lead initially to 
the the mission called Operation Restore Hope. Uh, and when you think about how, how, how ironic that title was, Restoring Hope, uh, it was supposed to be bringing in food and feeding people and also disarming the warlords who were in, in, in involved in kind of causing this man-made famine in the first place. But you know, the problem became, first of all, that, you know, we don't do nation building very well. America got pretty sick and tired, you know, very quickly after uh, distributing food, deciding that, well, we don't want to stay here in, uh, in this African country and potentially take casualties. So they turned the entire operation over to an ill-equipped uh, United Nations force that never had the mandate that it needed to go out. And even though it had this new chapter seven mandate under the United Nations to actually use aggressive means, it never really had the backup it needed, the equipment it needed, the manpower it needed, and basically the United States support it would have needed to do what really needed to be done, which was disarm these, these warlord factions. When the Americans first came in with the US Marines, you know, at the end of 1992, the warlords just kind of hid their weapons and buried, and then buried their, their heavy arms and decided to go uh, sit back and wait and fight for another day. That other day came when the Americans announced they were gonna withdraw the bulk of their forces and turn this over to this ill-equipped United Nations force because America had basically very little staying power to do the kind of the hard work of nation building. And so I kind of watched with disillusionment as this, this, this operation that was supposed to take this lawless country that had descended into anarchy after the fall of the uh, dictator, Mohamed Siad Barre, and it was supposed to turn it into this kind of functioning democracy in Africa, but we just didn't have the staying power or the willpower to do it, uh, especially because we had a transfer from the Bush administration to the Clinton administration, which was elected in 92. Bill Clinton kind of inherited this thing and he couldn't wait to get out fast enough. And the whole thing kind of fell into chaos yet again. And if you look now, it's still in chaos. I mean, and, and, and it's, 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 it's a sad story because of all the manpower and all the money that was pumped into Somalia that, uh, that the world community basically still has not been able to restore anything amounting to a functioning, you know, a pr prosperous uh, uh, country there. And so it was really kind of a disappointment. And that was really kind of what turned me off to the whole idea of nation building in the first place. Uh, you know, we've tried it in Afghanistan, we've tried it in Iraq, and, uh, you know, it, it, it just goes to show the limits of nation building. Yeah, I mean, you, you also mentioned Rwanda and the genocide. Ironically, Rwanda was actually too dangerous for you to enter at first because of your skin color. Being mistaken for an African can have lethal consequences in Africa. Absolutely, absolutely. My, my editors insisted, and I heartily agreed with them, that Rwanda was just too dangerous. I had already had a few close calls in, in Somalia where people mistook me for a Somali once I was shoved to the ground and had a machine gun pointed in my face because they, they mistook me for someone else. You know, but the, in Rwanda, they were basically you know, grabbing people out of cars and, and, and chopping them into bits. Uh, you know, people who wore eyeglasses were considered Tutsi elite and were being killed by the Hutu and I wear eyeglasses. So that was not, you know, that was not something I was willing to risk going into uh, Rwanda. And, and again, I mean, the, the amount of, of death that was caused in, 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 during that genocide, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not a million people killed, and they were executed with crude garden tools. I mean, you know, with, with rakes and hoes and machetes that are used for chopping, you know, for chopping bush and cane. I mean, you're talking, it's, it's, it's medieval. 
and 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 it was it was just shocking for me. It was shocking to the system to see that this was happening in in the 1990s. You know, getting ready for the turn of the century. You know, in a world where you know the rest of the world was getting ready to go onto the internet, and here they are chopping each other up with their chopping their neighbors up with machetes because they they belong to a different tribe. And I guess that's that was the breaking point for me when I came out of that thinking that you know those black Americans who think somehow they want to come back to Africa and live in a mythical Africa that never existed. I mean, it kind of reminds me of people saying now make America great again, you know, let's go back to Africa where it was everything was great. And my, my message in the book was you don't know what it's like, you don't know how horrific some places could be with the, the various tribal uh, wars, the, uh, the ethnic disputes going on, the geographic disputes. And when you looked around that entire country, every place from uh, Sudan through what was then Zaire, through Cong uh, Congo, uh, Rwanda, Burundi, you know, uh, going over to West Africa. I mean, there were a lot of unresolved conflicts, and there's still today a lot of unresolved conflicts in Africa. I mean, you, you did eventually get into Rwanda quite soon after the massacre, the, right. the, the genocide, and you said uh, you couldn't get over the smell of death. That's right. I went in with the, basically when the French began going in with Operation Turquoise, Operation Turquoise, uh, you know, it was uh, amazing because then you started having a, uh, a cholera epidemic sweeping through the camps just on the Rwanda-Zaire border at the time in places like Bukavu and Goma. But then you would drive in from, we would base ourselves in Zaire and then drive over into Rwanda for one or two day trips, uh, going back and forth to be safe. And you could literally go into small villages and just smell the death where people had been buried in shallow graves. Uh, it, it, was, it, was, it was something you'll never get over. And then, then, and then to cross back over again into Goma and Bukavu and Zaire where there was a cholera epidemic sweeping through. I saw bodies stacked up like firewood on the backs of trucks. I saw bodies laying out uh, you know, on the side of the road to be collected. I saw a sight I'll never forget was a small child, no more than maybe two or three, you know, uh, next to the body of its mother who had died and the child was just crying and banging with both fists on the mother's chest, try, almost trying to will her to come back to life. You know, it was, I mean, scenes like that just never, never leave you. Indeed. Uh, um, Keith, what was it like uh, as a black guy coming in from America, working in Nairobi? Our, our mutual friend, journalist David Fox, who incidentally knew you from the days when he was a correspondent for Reuters in Nairobi said about you, he was a rarity, a black foreign correspondent in Africa, yet even more foreign than us African white correspondents. <laughs> yes, that's indeed, that's indeed the case because there are quite a few white South African correspondents who were traveling around Africa at the time. And they actually seemed to have a more of an affinity or attachment to the continent than I had. I mean, I was actually, uh, probably more out of my element in Africa than I've ever been, you know, anywhere else I've been, you know, uh, which is ironic enough because people think, oh, you're, you're black, you must have some kind of kinship with Africa. Yeah, to me, I always saw Africa as mainly a, an amazing story, an amazing place to cover. But, uh, you know, in terms of, of actually feeling an affinity for the place, you know, for, for, for whatever reason, I felt more affinity or more, uh, more at home when I've been based in Paris or when I've been based in Asia and Hong Kong or other places than I actually felt in Africa. I actually felt quite alien, you know, when I was, uh, when I was in Africa. And, you know, that's, it's, it's, it's not necessarily an unusual feeling as well, because, you know, I've, I've spoken, especially after the book came out and then very recently, I've spoken to, uh, my Chinese American friends and family members who have said that, that they've never felt more alien than when they were in China. 
you know, or I, or I, or I have friends who, you know, who are, have, you know, who've grown up in America. Again, they're, you know, a hundred percent American, but you know, they have ancestors that can date back to, uh, to Russia or to Latin America. And then they take a trip there and they say, wow, that place is really alien, you know, because you know, you, you are a product of your, your surroundings where you're grown up, where you're born. And, uh, and to me, that's, that, that run, that runs deeper than, than, uh, you know, some ancestral connection that, you know, some people just don't have. It, I mean, it was a very exciting time to be in Africa, in East Africa. Um, the book was published in 1997. The world we live in now is quite a different place. America has had a black president. Movements such as BLM is forcing public institutions and art collections to scrutinize their links to slavery. So I suppose I have two questions here. Do you think Obama was good for Africa? And the second one, are you happy with the way BLM and counterculture is going, how it's progressing? Well, I, do, I think Obama was good for, for Africa and good for the world, but maybe for a different reason than some people think. I think among other things, it made, uh, it made people see America the way I see America. I always saw America as a place of great opportunity for anyone, regardless of your skin color. Now I'm not naive enough to to say that you know you, you know if you're you know George George Floyd's of the world or, or Bianca Taylor's or the others who've been killed by police that's real you know that systemic racism is real but on the other hand for those like Barack Obama who have gotten an education and gone on and gone into politics I mean I mean they're doing great things and if you look around you know the number of black CEOs the number of black journalists the number of uh, black millionaires uh, you know the number of black doctors lawyers um, you know, entertainers who've not won Oscars, et cetera. You know, I mean, it's, it is a place of great opportunity for African-Americans. So you can always say, you know, and again, I'm, I'm not denying the systemic racism that exists, but I am talking about, let's look at some of the opportunities there. And it's almost a question of the glass half full versus the glass half empty kind of a question. And to me, uh, you know, the, you know, having Barack Obama as president of the United States, particularly as I was moving back to Asia at the time, it gave the world and it gave Africans another view of blacks in America, uh, as opposed to saying all blacks are being oppressed or all blacks are, are in prison or all blacks are, are, are you know, below the poverty line or all blacks are suffering. Here you have this educated, erudite, you know, you know, Harvard educated, you know, brilliant man who, you know, rose to the top of, you know, politics and got the Democratic nomination, vanquishing a Clinton along the way, and serving two miraculous terms as president, miraculous for the fact that you can't think of a single scandal involving Barack Obama or his family. I think he acquitted himself enormously well as president of the United States. Uh, you know, you'd be looking back, it's, you, know, you, you kind of wish for the Obama days now. And so it, to, to me, it kind of changed the entire image of Africans and African Americans, Black Americans around the world, um, you know, I can I can tell you before I you know before and I was living in in Asia or or in Europe, you know, many, you know, you meet people all, you know casually and they they would see a Black American as I am, and one of the first questions would be, oh, are you in the military or are you a black are you a singer or are you a basketball player? <laughs> About five foot six, because in their mind, that's all Black people in America could do. So having a Black man as president of the United States, I think you know, blew up that perception, you know, even though in the past you've had, you know, Colin Powell was Secretary of State and, 
Condoleezza Rice, et cetera. You, so you, you know, you've had the blacks in prominent positions, but never that prominent a position before. So that, that, that did amazing things, I believe. And it also, to me, showed Africans what progress was possible in the United States. And, 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 and the BLM question. Yes, the BLM question, again, like I say, it's, uh, we come, we, you know, it shows that Americans are willing to come to terms with their problems. Americans are willing to wrestle with their faults and try to correct them. It takes time. We don't always get it right. But don't forget how the civil rights movement, uh, you know, that started in the late 50s and went through the 1960s and Reverend Martin Luther King inspired similar civil rights movements around the world. And one of the things I think, I think has been uh, amazing about the Black Lives Matter movement is, uh, first of all, how it's taken off from, you know, going out of Minneapolis to around the world that just caught fire. But, you know, I look around now and I see there were Black Lives Matter protests going on in Japan, in various cities, in Korea, in Australia, where people were indigenous populations and people supporting the indigenous populations uh, were, were protesting and, and, you know, against the police treatment of, of, uh, of indigenous peoples in jails. Uh, in South America, in Germany, in Ireland, where I didn't even think there were any black people. There were Black Lives Matter murals being painted on, on, on walls in, in Dublin. And so it was amazing to me how they started toppling uh, statues of colonialists in the UK and in Brussels and, you know, in, in Belgium, you know, and all over the world. And so it sh really shows that what happens in the U.S. does uh, uh, have a, uh, an impact around the world, and particularly uh, you know, this kind of, you know, uh, coming to, to a reckoning with racial uh, injustice that's persisted for, for centuries. And how, to me, it's just been really inspiring to see how, once again, you know, America is this place that does inspire the world. I mean, go back another, go back a year or two ago. People forget about it now, but the Me Too movement uh, uh, for women started in the United States and then triggered Me Too movements all around the world, including here in Asia, where we are now. So it's, it, it America is this place of inspiration. And I think the Black Lives Matter movement is kind of a continuation along that line. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think the age of social media is too quick to name and shame without there being any fact checking? I think there's a danger of social media naming and shaming without fact checking. I think there was a danger of people kind of being accused of things and having to resign or having to lose their livelihood and lose their position for things where when you look back, you could say, well, hold on a second, that wasn't that bad. So, uh, you know, I, I don't want to pull out any specific examples at the moment because, and I'd probably not think of a good one and get myself in trouble. But, uh, you know, it's starting to get to the point where I noticed that, you know, uh, well, I will use one example, you know, the comedian who turned senator, a very good senator, Al Franken, was forced to resign his Senate seat because uh, people were accusing him of doing naughty things in photographs. You know, you know, putting his hands where it wasn't where they weren't supposed to. So he kind of, you know, he was, we lost an amazing, amazingly good United States senator. But then, you know, he's being put in the same category, you know, having to resign as a Harvey Weinstein who was a rapist, you know, uh, you know, or or a, you know, or a Donald Trump who bragged about grabbing women by the private part. So I do think, you know, we need to kind of start making some distinctions between, you know, behavior that's just kind of, you know, uh, you know, you know, not not unwanted and things that should be condemned versus behavior that's actually criminal. And I, I do think that there, was a, there, there has been a tendency to go a little bit too far. And it's particularly with social media and where it's concerned, you could easily just sh name and shame someone without it, them ever having the chance. But once, because once you've been named and called out as being a, a sexist or a racist, or even a racist, 
there's sometimes no chance for you to actually kind of defend yourself and kind of just sort of say, well, you know, okay, yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I find kind of interesting now is also that in the social media age, people's lives, especially young people, their lives are so public that you're not allowed to make mistakes. And young people, all everybody makes mistakes in their in their youth, either telling jokes they shouldn't have told or doing things. And you know, I'm I'm really glad when I look back that we didn't have social media and, and the age of digital cameras when I was coming along as a young man in my teens and early 20s. You know, I, I, I don't think any of us could have survived that kind of 24-7 scrutiny and having our, our personal lives kind of splashed across social media. No, I certainly wouldn't have. Um, but the youth of today, particularly in Hong Kong, um, in fact, specifically Hong Kong, are pretty polite. As director of journalism at the Hong Kong University, do your students question you about your book and the belief that the, the fourth estate is not necessarily neutral, the media is expected to galvanize governments into action? Well, they do. Yeah, some actually go. Yeah, they actually go out and read my book. It's in the Hong Kong University Library here. They uh, sometimes we come in and, and ask questions about it. Usually, questions about identity, et cetera. But you know, it's interesting. This new crop of young journalists, and I think not just here in Hong Kong, but probably in the United States and elsewhere, uh, they they get into journalism because they do see it as a public service. First of all, they do see it as a, you know, as a way that they can promote causes like whether it be climate change or gender equality or uh, you know or or you know or treatment of the children or treatment of the of the disabled you know they, they, they come in because they're passionate about causes um, and I love that I love that and, and they also, and it's about checks and balances it's about checks and balances it's about talking truth to power and they don't come with the same notions of objectivity that we brought to it in the old days. And I think they're actually right in some ways, which is they don't want to have a story about climate change that tries to be objective, saying on the one hand, on the other hand, uh, you know, some scientists say it's true, but there are other scientists who say it's not true. No, they want to cover stories about the impact of climate change and the, the climate deniers be damned. You know, uh, LGBT rights. I mean, they don't want to cover the side of the story that says, you know, uh, the gays and lesbians don't deserve to have, you know, rights. They want to cover the story about discrimination. You know, you know, they, you know, they want to cover stories that are truthful and without having this kind of false sense of balance or equivalency or this false sense of objectivity in stories. I mean, they want to, and I, I think that's absolutely right. And I think the notion of so-called objectivity has blinded us uh, in some ways, us old-fashioned journalists, to the idea of, no, no, our job is to report what's truthful, not simply to have this kind of fake notion of kind of, you know, on the one hand, on the other hand. I, I think that's kind of what, in some ways, what got Donald Trump elected. In 2016, the media was unwilling to call out his lies or call out him as someone who was unfit for office because they basically were saying kind of, well, he's, he's this bad, but on the other hand, look at Hillary Clinton's emails and look at the scandals at the Clinton Foundation. So, you know, it, and so I think voters in 2016 walked away looking at these false equivalency stories thinking, well, each one is just as bad as the other, so they're just the same. And I think journalists have more of an obligation. I think you're seeing that now. I, thought you, I think you still see that or you saw that in this just ended 2020 campaign. Yeah, I, I'm, your, your book was written 20 years ago, and I must say it's as current today as it was back then, and I love the book, Keith. Um, from my side, being a white Zimbabwean, I found it absolutely fascinating. It's a really honest narrative, which is difficult for many of today's readers, well, maybe I'm wrong, 
difficult for many of today's readers to kind of grasp, I suppose because it's the unwashed truth. As a black man, you are able to illustrate a perspective that can't be ignored. Well, you know, and I, I, and I appreciate that. Thank you very much. And I, you know, I, I'm way overdue to write an update to that book. So if you know any publisher who wants to send me to Africa for some time to do some research, I'd love to update it or do another <laughs> book about what Africa is like now. But, uh, you know, interestingly, uh, several people after, when I was writing the book and showed the draft to a few friends, correspondent friends who had been there in Africa, or once it came out and I asked them to read it to give me a blurb, uh, said similarly the same thing. They said only a black correspondent could have written that in as honest and an unvarnished way. And I mean, I think if you're going to write a book, you have to write it in that kind of an honest way. You can't be varnished about it. I knew I would take a little bit of flack for it, but you know, interestingly enough, for all the flack I took, I had far more people tell me, you know, including black Americans, diplomats, uh, business, black businessmen who had worked in Africa, sending me cards, sending me letters, uh, basically saying, I agree with you, or thank you for writing that book, or I'm glad someone finally said what I wasn't brave enough to say. So I, that really, that really heartened me. So a lot of people focused on the criticisms of the book, but actually I was more heartened by how many people came out of nowhere to basically say, thank you, that was a you know, brave book to write. Including Africans. Including Africans who are writing saying, thank you, somebody finally said what we've been thinking. You know, it's interesting you saying it's time to update the book and maybe to go back to Africa. But you also famous, famously said, and this is a, a podcast full of famous quotes, um, I'm terrified of Africa and I don't want to be from this place. <laughs> do you still believe that? Do you think that's fairly, do you think that's fair? Well, I mean, it was, I mean, it was fair at the time because as I left, I was, don't forget, I was coming out of the Rwanda genocide and Somalia famine, you know, but when I looked at it, I'm glad I'm from America, I guess was what I'm saying. Yeah. Again, it, it, to me, that's not, uh, that, that's to be proud to be an American as a black man. Some people look at that askance and say, how could you possibly say that? You should be from Africa. You should be proud to be African. But no, I'm proud to be American. I'm very, very proud to be American. I mean, my favorite holiday is the Fourth of July. You know, I'm, you know, I'm a very proud American, and I don't, you know, I don't, I'm unabashedly proud to be American. Uh, I'd love to go back to Africa and have a look around. It's unfortunately, from what I read, I have gone back, and I've gone back to South Africa and Kenya a couple, a couple of times to South Africa. You know, and I'm, I'm, I'm sad to say that you know some things have improved very much, but some things are actually quite worse than uh, when I wrote the book twenty something years ago. Yeah, just things seem to just go round and round in the same circle. People called the book brutally honest. Um, the truth is that it's actually a very personal journey about your time in Africa. And you've, you've never said that it's a history book. You've always said um, it's about how you felt at that time. And it's a very short span of time when it was written. And Absolutely. as you said, not all black people, uh, Americans or Africans, dislike the book. Absolutely. And, you know, that's kind of the, I'm glad you pointed that out because, you know, I, I read a couple of the, a lot of really good reviews of the book, but a couple of the bad reviews uh, basically said, well, he didn't get into the colonial history of Africa. He didn't dwell on, the, why didn't he talk about what the British and the French colonialists did in Africa? Why didn't, you know, why didn't he talk about the history of, of why African tribes were at each other's throats? And, uh, you know, at, at the beginning of the book, I tried to say, this is not a history book. This is not a book that's going back and going to blame colonialists for everything going on. I'm talking about the three years that I was based there as a correspondent. And of course, you know, I had a few people who criticized the book saying, yeah, but I, I went on vacation to Ghana and I had a great time there in my three weeks. Yeah, well, of course you'll have a great time if you're going on safari or you're going to go see the old 
slave quarters in Senegal, et cetera. You, know, you can have a fantastic time in Africa. I was there as a correspondent. So my job, by definition, took me to some of the worst places in the continent that the average tourist or the average businessman is going to be avoiding if they're on the continent, because that was my job. And you, if you're, you know, it's the same way as if your job was in Europe during that time, you were probably covering the Yugoslav War. You know, you weren't there sitting in the cafes of Paris. So yeah, again, people kind of misunderstood what the book was. It was a journalist memoir of covering some of the most horrific stories of the 1990s in Africa. I mean, it's a real gem of a book. Um, unfortunately, the clock is ticking. So let me just plug the book. It's called Out of America, and it can be purchased through Amazon and Kindle. Uh, but before we leave you, Keith, we cannot ignore the big story of the day because this podcast is actually going out on the day of the U.S. elections. How do you think it's going? Dare I ask you who you want to win? Well, I, I think the last four years have been a nightmare, a mistake. Uh, you know, I think so. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm biased in that regard because I'd like to see American democracy succeed. I'd hate to make a prediction because all predictions were wrong in 2016, but at this point, uh, it looks like, barring any shenanigans on the part of the Trump administration, that the, the chances are that he's going to be out by the time your listeners hear this. Uh, the reason is you get the best, you know, because I was a political reporter before I went overseas, the best track of a, a, an incumbent president and how they're going to do in their reelection is their job approval rating. And Trump's job approval rating has been between 42 and 44 or 45 percent for most of his presidency. Now it's down in the lower uh, end of that range. So it's hard to see how his vote count uh, nationwide gets over 42 or 44%. And secondly, Joe Biden's poll numbers have been about hovering around 50% or more in nationwide and in those uh, pivotal swing states uh, pretty much since March or April. Uh, he's not, he's very much, he's very much been hovering around that 50% mark, which is crucial. So which means that for Trump to win, he'd have to peel away some voters who have already decided for Biden. And Finally, I would say last time around, don't forget, there were two pretty formidable third party candidates who were sucking votes away from Hillary Clinton. You had a Green Party candidate and you had a uh, Libertarian Party candidate, Gary Johnson and Jill Stein for the Green Party. This year, the, green, the third party candidates are, are, are minuscule. They're not getting any votes, really. And so and you don't have finally you don't have this kind of late, any late breaking scandals going against Biden. You add that all together, you lump on top of that the coronavirus pandemic, which Trump has badly mishandled. And I think it would be a miracle for him to win. The question would be, does he relinquish power, you know, upon learning he has lost, or does he try to do some shenanigans and discount mail-in votes or other things to try to cling to power, which I don't really see happening. Fascinating times we're living in, Keith. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time. Thank you so much, Keith Richberg, for joining me on Conversations with Pete Wood. Thank you, Pete. Good luck. Oh, fantastic. Speak to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that's all for now, but if you enjoyed listening to that podcast, you might also find my book, Mud Between Your Toes, faintly amusing. You can buy the book on Amazon. You can find both series one and two of my podcasts on a plethora of platforms, from direct links on my Mud Between Your Toes Facebook page to apps such as Podbean, Apple Music, iTunes Store, Spotify Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, CastBox, TuneIn Radio, and Google Podcasts. So don't miss out on my next episode. Goodbye.